Welcome to Green Tea, sustainable stories from Bowdoin Campus and beyond, a production of the Bowdoin Sustainability Office with your hosts, Marie Caspard and Diego Velasquez, telling stories about sustainability from the perspective of faculty, staff, students, and Brunswick community members. This is the fifth episode of season two, and we're exceptionally excited to continue our conversations this spring semester with our guests, talking about their connection to environmental education and the nexus of spirituality and environmentalism. Episodes will be posted on the Bowdoin Sustainability website following their airing on WBOR. Find future episodes as well as all of Season 1 and Season 2 each Friday at www.bowdoin.edu slash sustainability slash green dash t dash podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today we're speaking with Olivia Grissett, who is the Executive Director of the Maine Environmental Education Association, MEEA, and the founder of the Maine Environmental Changemakers Network. Welcome to Green Tea, Olivia. Um, okay, well, we can start with a question that we usually, um, sometimes we conclude with, but I think today it's kind of fitting maybe to begin with. Um, it's kind of open-ended, but um, maybe you could speak to um, what sustainability means to you. Yeah. <laughs> so I think for me, sustainability is really kind of thinking about things holistically, like um, thinking about full-circle systems. I guess, it, I guess it comes back to systems thinking around how our actions are impacting the planet and how the planet impacts us mm. and thinking about reducing, reducing our impact and just kind of like looking at the whole system and really understanding the, it's deeper than just individual action. Mm-hmm. A lot of the work in sustainability is systemic as well and like policies that drive sustainability or don't drive sustainability mm-hmm. so I guess um I guess I'm not being fully articulate about this but yeah. sustainability is really complicated yeah in that it's like come down to my individual choices what kind of car I drive what kind of, you know do I recycle or not what kind of clothes I buy how often I reuse <laughs> um things but then it's also couched within this whole system of mm-hmm. consumerism and a uh, circular economy and who actually has the privilege or not to engage based upon oppression. So I think it's actually a really complex complex thing, but I think underlying it all, the reason that I work in, you know, connecting people to gaining more knowledge about this, environmental education, is because of, like, that impact and just hopefully being able to be healthy on this planet, that, like, all of our human health is connected to the health of the planet, mm-hmm. and how can the, and all the, also other living creatures that have a right to exist as well, um, in a healthy way, so kind of that basic human right to mm-hmm. access clean water, mm-hmm. um, healthy food, that type of thing. I was talking to a friend the other day who was talking about, like, sort of this question of, like, consumer or sort of like individual action versus like more systemic um, issues and she was thinking about it as like you have the choice within like your individual actions but it's maybe more difficult to create choice within like the choices that you do have um, if that makes sense I think we talk a lot about individual action which is really important and raising individual awareness and um, a shared value in individuals like this is important to me you know having that within you yeah but we're also working within a system that can 
have a lot of impact on success. So how do we actually reimagine and reinvent that system that is holding us in place? Kind of moving towards um, maybe a little bit more specifically your work, there are a lot of different ways to approach sustainability. Um, and I'm wondering if there's anything in particular, like what drew you to working in education? Yeah, I actually came to this work through being a scientist and being an ecologist um, and working in fisheries biology and working in ecosystems. And, um, and that was really fascinating and really interesting then I started to realize, like, um, through it all, like, the, the human side, the human dimension is really complex and really interesting and is really, really important in, like, <laughs> in sustainability. Like, yeah. if we're not working at systems change and social evolution, like, with the human side, it, the scientific work I was doing was almost like a mute point, mm -hmm. if that makes sense, even though it was really important. And so it drew me the other way and kind of had me think about, like, you know, where education is a, is a tool for social transformation. You know, it's a really powerful thing. And education is a place where we, like, learn to form our own opinions and become ourselves and, and, and build the values that we take into our life as people and where we put our energy. Mm. And so I was really drawn to environmental education because I think it's, like, an incredibly powerful tool for social change. I think it's really overlooked. Like right now we're talking about all these different climate solutions and climate education is really, really, really important climate solution. And and I think sometimes it's kind of like pushed to the side. Sort of talking about your, your uh, route into education, can you give us a bit of background and history um, about your story? working with the organization you work with and um, the founding of uh, the network that you're heavily involved in now? Yeah, sure. So um, I actually, when I, I kind of transitioned out of doing more research and science, um, I became a high school science teacher in Maine, in a, rural, in a rural high school here in Maine, and I really loved it. And when I was doing that work, I was able to um, become really involved in kind of in leadership in the environmental ed movement, I would say, like at the state level through the organization I work for now, which is the Maine Environmental Education Association, and also with a, like a national curriculum development group called Project Learning Tree that builds like curriculum around <laughs> environmental education. Um, and so after um, I decided to step away from the classroom because I had children and I wanted to kind of transition away and be home with them when they were little for a few years, um, do my own environmental education with my own kids too, um, have that time to do that with them. And uh, then I just kind of got really fascinated with networks and the power of networks. And so I applied to work for the Maine Environmental Ed Association and was hired and am now the executive director of that group, um, of that nonprofit. And I also um, work a lot at the national level. I sit on the steering committee for the North American Association for Environmental Ed, which is really cool because I get to be um, able to work with thought leaders in the field all across the country um, and then kind of bring back to Maine some of the like emerging um just like innovation in the field and emerging trends and really bring it home to Maine and, and build the movement here based upon, based upon like what's happening in the country and kind of 
building that energy here in Maine, which I'm, I'm really, really um, passionate about Maine as a place to live and work and um, just kind of growing the the ability for every kid in Maine to have access to powerful outdoor learning opportunities, I think is amazing, and I'm really committed to that. Mm-hmm. And then a few, I think it was like four years ago, um, we also started working really hard on um, really digging into our own organization around equity and inclusion and thinking about um, thinking about leadership training and, and leaders in the movement and whose voices have often been excluded in the movement and just trying to build, like, youth power in, in, in the state. And so we launched a collaborative sort of network. We host it, but a lot of different organizations were part of the design and support it um, called the Maine Environmental Changemakers Network. And, and that's a statewide network that connects young people between the ages of 15 and 30 with um, – with like training with each other, number one, because we were finding like youth in Maine are so passionate about sustainability, about environmental justice, about climate justice, but they're like very isolated from one another because we're the most rural state in the country. And so we were like, can we build convenings and, you know, online ways to connect um, and to raise money and just to create spaces for young people to come together across their campuses and across their high schools to share what they're doing and to learn from each other and to also be connected with mentors. Mm -hmm. So we launched that network and it's a really exciting network. It's growing really rapidly. We have amazing, we have our fellow Sabrina Hunt, who is a Bowdoin student right now is one of our fellows helping us build that network. Um, And we just have like a lot of really exciting things happening with that network and can really build a momentum building and um, building kind of like a new generation of leaders leaders who are like ready to walk into organizations and really really ready to have that system mm-hmm. thinking mindset and empowered to really push back on some of the traditional structures in the sector around um, it being a very like white privileged uh, white dominant um, like upper class sort of mm-hmm. sector in general so breaking down some of those barriers in leadership are there are there any notable participants um, or like third parties that um, you see as like an interesting addition to the this environmental network, maybe maybe participants that aren't uh, like normally considered within the landscape of environmental work, um, and also like what you find to be the most inspiring or successful aspect of all of this for you. Yeah, I mean, I think we have you know different um, established environmental partners and whatever, but I think the the most inspiring thing are the young people themselves. Like they're they're um, incredible environmental leaders, and I think um, one of the things is just really like it's not about empowering them; it's about like stepping. It's about like getting them the mic, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. It's not. Um, it's about like building opportunities for them to share their ideas, and you know we talk a lot about social innovation and design, and we have like. Um, Chloe Maxman, who is currently in the House of Representatives, she was one of the young people in Maine who helped launch Changemakers. And, you know, she's like, I'm going to, like, make change by entering the political system. And now she's the youngest person in the House of Representatives, and she's running for Senate this year. Um, and then, you know, we have a couple young people up at Bangor High School, uh, Amara Iseji and Mel Tian, who are doing amazing individual environmental research on stormwater, and they're leading 
all sorts of social justice and climate justice work at their school, and they're winning like international science competitions, and they're really passionate about working at the intersection of social justice and the environmental like research sector, which is really interesting. We have I could talk all day about <laughs> the youth in Maine all around the state who are doing like amazing projects. So I think that's the most incredible part is just kind of thinking about how can we provide resources, like maybe it's just a little bit of funding or maybe it's like connecting them with a grant or maybe it's um, getting a training put together that can really elevate like needs that they're circling around to really move them forward in leadership. So if we can do that kind of network level work and just like bring the barriers down so that they can really fly. Like we've had we do a lot of work around, like, nominating youth for awards and for internships or national-level opportunities. And um, Sabrina, for instance, did an internship in D.C. at the North American Association for Environmental Ed last summer. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so it's just really cool for us to, like, help leverage um, our networks to make sure young people are getting jobs in the state and opportunities to advance in their work. Yeah. I'm feeling inspired just by listening to you talk about how you're inspired. So, yeah, that's it awesome. is very inspiring. <laughs> the best thing, like literally, the best thing in my life, I would say, in my professional life, is when I can be like, "Look at what this person just did! It's so amazing!" Or like, kind of open up a space for them to have like the mic in a conference, or you know, seeing these people like just moving forward on their journey. It's so inspiring. That's super cool, especially at, like, a young age. I feel like there's a lot of room for, like, growth and really supporting that is so awesome. (laughs) I guess speaking to, like, giving young people the mic, and um, I think you touched on the Changemakers program a little bit. Um, Could you speak to the level of, like, youth involvement in um, actually, like, determining environmental education curriculums? Like... Are there opportunities for like input in that space? Yeah, and like what what the what the general importance is of having youth voices at the table mm-hmm. in that at, at that conversation? Yeah, definitely. I feel like it's critical. I feel like often, um, you know, for us in our work, youth are the stakeholder. You know, in development of curriculum or in policy that would impact environmental education or nature based learning, all that stuff you know, youth are ultimately the stakeholder, right? <laughs> and so, like, it's, it's so general. It's I don't know how this developed, but that you ne- they're never consulted or asked their opinion about what we're trying to do to advance them. <laughs> and it's like, this is so backwards. Right. So I think um, anytime we can create space where it's like, they, they need to have input on the development of, programs or in policy efforts so I'm working really hard and I think Changemakers helps build a a venue for that where there's a whole bunch of activated youth that you know if there are questions or there's an opportunity to sit on a steering committee for something else or um, places to make input then we can activate that network too to step in and you know be a player in that so Mm -hmm. I think it's really 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 important and um I can't, like, emphasize that enough. And I think it's not done very often. What are some examples of, like, occasions where... Yeah, like, I'm just trying to think of, like, logistically almost. Like, are there, like, particular pieces of legislation that have gone through recently that 
maybe had a stronger like youth input like I'm wondering if you have any particular examples off the top of your head yeah I I actually right now am working really hard on building we're kind of building a, a new well a newish consortium in Maine called the nature based education consortium mm-hmm. and it's like a broad consortium that's going to that is focused on one of the focuses of the consortium is on um, shifting state policy work or building doing policy work in general mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I think that's going to be a place I don't I honestly can't say that there's been a lot of state level policy work in the past where youth have had a lot of voice in environmental education. Mm-hmm. It's possible that there maybe were other environmental like environmental policies that youth had a bigger voice in. Mm-hmm. I know there's definitely a lot of work right now in the climate world mm-hmm. where youth are making much of a bigger voice mm-hmm. known around uh, the future and climate, but in, environmental education specifically, I think we're really building power and building momentum and hoping to have um, some impact in the next few years that will do more work in the state around that, and we are really we are really excited to get youth involved mm-hmm. and um, deeply in that process as it evolves. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I hope in a few years from now I will have some very good specific examples. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, right now on the Climate Council, there's a couple of youth representatives on the Climate Council, which Mm -hmm. is really great, uh, that they at least um, have a seat at that important table. Um, And we're excited in trying to support that. And I know a lot of the um, the youth climate movement groups like the main youth for climate justice and main strikes back and there's a lot of different groups forming out like grassroots groups and they are making demands on the climate council um, very specific demands and I, I don't I don't have the ability to speak clearly right now to those demands but I know they are putting those them forward so they're they are doing um, important work uh, in the state for sure. And I do know, like, at local levels and municipal levels, we've had change makers that have led forward um, before it was legislated statewide. We had a change maker in Bethel lead forward the plastic bag bag ban for her town. Um, we have a couple of change, high school age change makers um, in Portland, Siri and Lucia, who are, were really, are really critical behind this uh, Portland school district working to... Um, solarize their entire school district and they worked with their city council and the school so we have a lot of young people who are really doing effective work Mm -hmm. um and it's definitely you know important it seems like you've had a diverse career in many different places um both within education and um environmentalism and environmental education reform um speaking to sabrina hunt uh one of your fellows and also a good friend, um, she brought up the work that you've enacted in the D.C. school systems, and we were hoping you could talk a bit about education reform, um, like the challenges posed there, um, and and how that, in, that work has influenced um, your experience in Maine. Yeah, so we're, right now in Maine, we're really studying educational reform around environmental educational like reform work around the entire country we're studying it really deeply 
because we'd love to build something that's name specific but can like can build off of the learnings from other states and I would say whenever you're trying to do systems change work it's really difficult but when you're trying to do educational reform it's one of the most resistant systems to change like maybe the most resistant (laughs) change so it's 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 an uphill battle um and school because schools are very in Maine we have local control so there's a lot of um decisions making happening at like the municipal town level so there's opportunity to do work at the municipal level like to kind of build an understanding of how this education can be really powerful for kids, getting kids out of their seat and into their community, like actually learning, doing like hands-on relevant mm-hmm. science projects outside in their school garden or uh, in the woods near their campus, to, like bring the bring the learning alive, you know what I mean? So I think there's, you know, opportunities at the muni- municipal level to do some um, like building understanding about the benefits of that for youth and also... Um, kind of making some suggestions that that schools are putting it into their budget and prioritizing it. Mm-hmm. And then there's obviously opportunities at the state level. Um, there's states who have done, there's kind of different pathways. There are states who have created grant programs that can like support paying for this, helping school districts pay for this type of educational experience, including like partnering with nonprofits who are kind of experts in this kind of learning. And Maine is one of the most amazing states in the country for how many nonprofits we have that do amazing, like, environmental education work. Mm-hmm. Or or there's also the route where it's kind of internalized as part of um, standards. So, like, in Maryland, for instance, they have passed for all Maryland kids a graduation requirement that they have to demonstrate environmental literacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and in California, they have a lot of, really amazing work happening around environmental literacy and I would say California probably has the most evolved um, state policy around you know demonstrating that students are literate building supports around getting kids outside learning and it's pretty inspiring there's other states we can look to um, for role models around how how this type of policy change can happen it is possible it's not just like something to dream about it's really possible and it's happening in other states. So I think, you know, it, I know that it can happen here if we get organized and, you know, work together across sectors and with youth and, you know, think about how we can make that happen here. Yeah, that's super interesting. I graduated from high school in Maryland. I mean, at this point, it's been like four years ago, so I don't think that requirement was kind of like set in just yet. But that's really exciting and interesting to hear that there is sort of like a graduation requirement um, around that. There's also been like some conversation at Bowdoin about having like a sustainability distribution requirement. Um, it's kind of very early on in the conversation, but something that some Bowdoin faculty and, and students and staff are like thinking about. So um, yeah, it's always good to know that there and are what, other places who uh, have started. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Do you know what that would look like? Would that be sort of do you have any more thoughts on what that might look or feel like? Yeah. Um, so I think, so basically right now, Bowdoin's curriculum is sort of designed to have, like, you have a human- humanities requirement, you have, like, a natural science requirement, um, there's a visual arts one. Yeah. There are a couple of, like, 
general core requirements that you need to satisfy by the time you graduate. Um, but like sustainability or some, like or some kind of like environmental literacy is is not one of the like sort of categories that um, the college includes. And I think a sustainability requirement would have to be like relatively broad because I understand if people don't want to just be like forced into taking an environmental studies class. But um, yeah, so I mean, like my vision of it would be just to have sustainability be um, sort of like a, another categorization that can be used for classes and then students would have to take one sustainability course by the end of their Bowdoin College career. Um, whatever exactly that course looks like is kind of um, open-ended and I feel like that's kind of the point that it's like sustainability is a pretty broad um, area so there would be like room for it and even just to have like this is a distribution requirement sort of gets people thinking about that um, yeah. on a broader scale. And in a more interdisciplinary yeah. where you can apply it not only to just thoughts about environmentalism, but yeah. to thoughts of like education yeah. or humanities in general or like, linguistics and languages. Yeah. Like, yeah. I feel like, like I say like, oh, it would be hard to, you know, force people to take an environmental studies class. But if you think about it, like pretty much every department on campus like there there are things to be said about like sort of like impacts on the environment or like the human environment in like the econ department there are natural resources management classes like in the arts departments there are probably like um classes about like different schools of art that maybe engage with landscapes more closely or or distantly but yeah <laughs> Kind of something that we've been yeah, sort of pouring over here at Bowdoin. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's super exciting. And if you think of it as a theme, like, this is, like, it's, like, it's the most universal of all, right? Because yeah. you're really thinking about, like, the place in which you exist and reside and how you behave with it and interact with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, it's, it's, to me, it's, like, not that much about, I don't know, maybe it is, but not less about environmentalism and more about, like, thinking about systems and mm -hmm. how systems work and... Um, you know, if you're in business and you can create a more sustainable business through, like, behavior choices, mm -hmm. like, that would only be who we the end, you yeah. know? So, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, think, I think we're asking people to put, you know, I think it's really about a shared value and asking people to put, like, I don't know how to put it, but, like, to p put yourself not first, I guess, to think about, like, generation and to think about the whole picture and putting the whole before the parts of, like, you know, you can do really extractive behaviors and advance yourself as an individual at the detriment of the whole. Or you can flip that over and you can build practices that can advance the whole, right? So mm -hmm. I think it's all about a mindset shift, and, um, and that's pretty tricky, but I think, you know, I have to say, like, I am not of your generation, but your generation, in my opinion, is so inspiring because I feel like when I work with young people, they have such a broader, more fluid, flexible mindset, and they really are thinking about, you know, putting the the whole before themselves much more than I see in other, hmm. maybe in other generations. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, I think, like, there's a lot of conversation around... Um, sort of like interdisciplinary learning um, 
at Bonin, and I feel like it's it's kind of interesting to sort of see people try and bring more and more nuance into like their understandings of I don't know, just like place in general, but yeah. Um, yeah, I guess uh-huh. kind of going back to some of your work more specifically, um, how exactly do you like weave what you're trying to do into like the current fabric um, of education and like environmental education more specifically, like in the state of Maine? Um, you, you mentioned that a lot of like young people in Maine um, often like maybe have more difficulty connecting with each other just because it's such a rural place. Like I'm wondering if there are particular features about Maine that um, that you're like working to to weave in. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I definitely think that Maine as a specific context has its own unique barriers or and its own unique opportunities, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. I think being a really, really rural state in general, um, obviously transportation so like access to being able to go places mm. is it takes a long time things are really spread out um and transportation is a big barrier mm. i do think the solutions that arise from that are really amazing because i think there's a lot of solutions that are rising out um where people are looking at their own communities and their own schools as um you know places that they can create innovative environmental education programs right on their own campuses and, you know, within walking distance. Um, And that's really inspiring to see, you know, people doing the work right there in their own campuses. So um, there's a lot of examples of schools who are building outdoor classrooms, who are building trails, who have gardens that they're learning and teaching in. who are working with unusual, like, local community partners. Like, a lot of libraries are really involved in environmental education in Maine because they're kind of like, if you think about a rural community, like a lot of Maine's communities, like, the library is, like, a key cultural asset. It's, like, one of the only central places in the community if they even have a library or the library that's closest to their community. So they're almost like community hubs. And even in... um, like up in Millinocket, they even have a gear library as part of their public library now where you can go in and check out cross-country skis or you can check out snowshoes. So even like the teachers could use that if they wanted to for school or kids could do that. Um, so there's, there's a lot of, um, there's also, like I said, there's a ton of amazing nonprofits in Maine that are partnering with schools to do things to help schools kind of break their barriers down so that they can actually do environmental ed um, in schools more sustainably, or they can go to off-site programs and they can have experiences at those programs, and um, those are really powerful, too. So I think part of that, too, is, like, thinking about raising the funding to make it accessible for all main kids and not just some to have those types of experiences, not just the districts that have the wealth to do so. And that's a really important equity issue in our state. Yeah. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, those are, yeah, the, the Millinocket Library thing is super cool. I kind of don't think about, like, gear as a, as a, a, like, a classic resource that a library would provide. But especially in a rural place, I feel like that's even, even better to have um, kind of, like, outdoor gear. Yeah. If anything. Yeah, and, um... Yeah. I guess jumping to, um, like, 
the environmental education for a wider audience. Um, it seems like <clears throat> education can be uh, democratizing and simultaneously debilitating um, aspect of people's lives given their level of access to it. Um, I, from your experience, what have you learned about conveying messages um, within environmental education across across demographics, across wealth gaps, um, in different in different locations, even geographically and politically? I think one really important thing I've learned is that you know schools are a great place for some kids, but not all kids, right? So um, we can do work that helps schools advance in this, but that's not the only place that it's really important to do work because for some people, like uh, an after-school program like a Y or the Girls and Boys Club, that's a place that's a little bit more, um, you know, is something that is more successful for, for them. So I think, like, not just focusing on schools is a really important piece as far as, like, building capacity to help actually reach, like, all children, not just some children, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I've been taught by, I've been taught that by other people who I really respect who remind us, like, remind us of that, that schools are a wonderful place, but they're not wonderful for everyone. So you can't just focus on school reform and actually meet the needs of everybody. So really thinking about communities and, and what's already in community that's working and, like, listening, really listening to, like, what's in your community and what's already working and then how do you, like, how do you build power for those groups, right? Instead of, like, inventing things <laughs> and thinking this will be the thing that works for everybody, just realizing that each community is really different and unique in Maine. Um, within each community, there's communities within those <laughs> communities that have an identity. And, there, and a lot of them are doing amazing things that are kind of coming up from the grassroots level so it's like how do we provide even if we do policy work this is what I'm really personally fascinated with if we can do policy work to advance this work how can it be broad enough that it can support um, not only schools which are really important but also community-based programming um, so maybe it would look like a grant program that could be applied you know that could provide funding because funding has been said to be like the biggest barrier for most most organizations so like mm -hmm. How can we provide more funding for this, but not just for schools, also for community organizations, or just really elevating, also on the communication side, like in movement building, I think it's really important, like, um, to really be cognizant of, like, who's telling what story, like, what stories are being told, what stories are being shared, whose stories not being told, who's telling those stories. And, like, really thinking about, like, there's a lot of amazing stories, but they might not fit, like, right in the box of, like, they might not, um, you know, everyone in it might not be wearing, like, a North Face coat or something. <laughs> but there's, like, amazing things happening in communities, like, growing food or, um, you know, things that are happening that are rising up that, like, deserve support and um, are just as powerful as anything else. So... I think it's a complicated question that you've asked, but I do think it's really driven in um, community empowerment and, like, really listening to what communities need and then trying to meet them where they're at and then just kind of grow from there. 
Do you have any thoughts or like experiences working with indigenous communities in particular? Um, I'm just sort of curious about um, sort of um, initiatives in, in those particular communities that that I think, I mean, typically have strong connections to, to their place, but um, how long histories of oppression and how, how you deal with that? Yeah, I think, number one, it, it has not been dealt with well, <laughs> to just voice that. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, I think, like, when in, in Indigenous communities, like, if you talk about environmental education, it's literally a ridiculous concept. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah. how... So I've had people from Indigenous communities be like, this is the most ridiculous concept. You have a name called environmental education. Like, you're <laughs> separating it out everything else. When, when it is, like, at the core of everything. Um, and so I, I believe that, like, we like we as a field or we as, like, a society could learn so much from, from that kind of, that mindset of that interconnection and like how it's kind of ridiculous to separate it out when it's, when it's, when it's interwoven into everything mm-hmm. and every decision. Um, and I think, you know, we have a lot of work to do to kind of, we have a lot of work to do to listen, just to start listening. And so it was interesting because our um, school of the year this year is the Indian Township School on the Passamaquoddy Reservation. And I was actually going to go up there tomorrow, but we've had a shift it around a little bit, but they're doing amazing environmental education, and they probably would not want me to call it that, you know, just like, they're doing amazing work there, they have an eco pond and an orchard, and the, their kids are, like, like growing all their own food, and they're, um, they're understanding their connection with, like, their choices, and how that impacts the earth, and their own life, and their health, and they're, um, they're working with all sorts of partners, and they're just an amazing role model in our state for a, for a school to, to do really, really cool environmental education. And they're also really weaving in their cultural knowledge into their, into their education. So they understand, you know, the value of these plants in, for their culture heritage, as well as bringing in like Western science. So they're bridging mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And um, in our organization, we're actually working on a grant with, uh, we actually submitted a grant, I don't know if we'll get it, um, to work with Navizan and the Wabanaki Youth and Science Program, where we would be um, hosting, like, teacher workshops, where teachers would spend a week, and uh, or a couple of different institute weeks, where they would, we would bring together, like, cultural knowledge keepers with Western science and kind of meld those two together so that young teachers could actually go back to their classrooms and really understand both perspectives and when they teach about Wabanaki history, it could be more rooted in something real to them um, and through a knowledge and connection and training. So I think there's a huge amount of work to be done in this space, and we're just, you know, we're vastly underdoing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know how to say that <laughs> more articulately. No yeah, yeah um, I think that throughout this conversation you've, you've uh, explicitly or implicitly answered nearly all the questions that we've come up with. Um, <laughs> and, and that said, I think that one of them, one, one of the questions we were going to ask, um, was, uh, about the trends that you see within education, um, trends for advancing environmental education, trends that you see as like pushing back against existing structures. And I think that, 
Um, one of the beautiful things with about education is that everyone involved in it is simultaneously learning and teaching. Um, and that, that that's something that we don't um, wholeheartedly like and openly analyze within a lot of other fields, but within edu- within education, it's a lot clearer. Um, and sort of within within the context of uh, traditional traditional knowledge, um, indigenous peoples and practices being conveyed to a wider audience, um, and and hearing your story of. Um, these indigenous people thinking that it's crazy that, you know, educational, environmental education is, uh, is a term. Um, <laughs> and they'd probably think it was even crazier that, you know, students at a liberal arts institution like this one in Maine don't have that as part of like their, their curriculum. Um, I think that there's, I think you point to the, the fact that there is a lot, um, a possibility, um, a lot of room to, to push for these, uh, traditional ways of thinking about things in in a, into a modern educational system. And it seems like there's a good deal of room for uh, putting that within the context of environmental education in specific. So that, yeah, was, a, for that, sure. that was a long-winded uh, <laughs> rant. <laughs> I have a lot of those. I, I, I know where you're coming from. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I totally agree. There's, there's a lot of work to be done. And I think it's mostly it mostly counters around listening and, you know, stepping back and, and learning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, um, cognizant of our time with you, uh, we'd like to bring this conversation back to Maine and to our campus. Um, and we're wondering if you could tell us a bit about your work with your fellows, uh, students at Bowdoin College and yeah, what the process has been like, what you've been able to accomplish and what your goals are for the future with it. Yeah, for sure. I would love to work more with, with students from Bowdoin. I think, um, you know, all my interactions with Bowdoin students has been amazing and I feel like it's just a really good opportunity for Bowdoin students though to, um, you know, it doesn't matter what campus you're on. Campuses can be very insular. Um, it's not unique to Bowdoin at all. Um, I think that being involved with something like our Changemakers Network, where you get out of your campus and you meet with you know young people and established mentors from all over the state and have that opportunity to share your ideas and um, just kind of grow and learn, like it's a it's a really awesome opportunity to kind of get beyond your campus and. You know, there might be a campus across the state that's doing something else that you've already worked on that you don't even know about if there's not that interchange of ideas. So I really recommend, like, checking out Changemakers and getting involved. We have a, a two-day gathering that happens up in, like, mid-coast um, every fall. And so we open applications for our next, like, cohort. It's basically like a year-long cohort, but you really only have to do the, the weekend, and then you kind of, like, can come in and out of any other activities that you want to be part of throughout the year and beyond. You never really leave. You just kind of – we just kind of have a new round each year, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then people will stay on the mailing list, and you're always invited after that to join us. And we, we kind of view ourselves really permeable, like – even if you haven't done the gathering and you want to join activities or information, you can. So you can find us on Facebook. We have a Facebook group called Maine Environmental Changemakers Network, and you can join that group. Um, and we are posting, like, jobs and internships and articles and, like, stuff pretty much every single day in that group. So it's a really good resource. 
Um, Sabrina is like launching Instagram, I think, for us a little bit more. So we are on Instagram. I think it's Changemakers Maine, but you, you, you might have to ask her that. <laughs> um, and then also, uh, Sabrina's working on some events around Earth Day, I think. Um, the 50th anniversary of Earth Day is happening this April, and I think Sabrina is working on some Changemaker events that might take place at Bowdoin that will also be for Bowdoin students and with Bowdoin. So if you're interested, um, you can probably learn more about us at like the Earth Day Fair, which I think is on the 17th on your campus, yep. and maybe some other things that we're still working on that are coming together, but you could also check in with her on more of those details as it comes together, but it would be great to meet you and, you know, get you looped into our our work statewide. And um, I don't know if I said this, but the application for the next Changemakers Gathering will open on August 1st. So even if you're like out and about somewhere else, <laughs> traveling or working, um, you can find us online, the Maine Environmental Ed Association website, Changemakers is in that. And you, you'll just be able to apply online. So you might want to like, you know, pencil that in to your August calendar or whatever. But um, yeah, I think that's like the basic information. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Definitely some stuff to mull over. <laughs> yeah, thank you for doing your podcast and all your work. It sounds really inspiring. So keep going, and I hope it. I hope you have fun with it. Thank you so much. Olivia, thank you so much for joining us. If you see Sabrina around campus, be sure to ask how you can get involved. Throughout the 2019-2020 academic year, we will be broadcasting on Brunswick's own radio station, WBRR 91.1, Mondays from 3 to 4 p.m. Each episode featuring live interviews with Brunswick and Bowdoin community members will be available the following Friday on the sustainability website at bowdoin.edu slash sustainability under the green tea tab. There you can also find show notes, photos, and descriptions of past episodes. And we are currently looking for new stories to share through green tea. If you would like to share what sustainability means to you, please email me, Marie, at mscaspar at bowdoin.edu. That's M-S-C-A-S-P-A-R at Bowdoin.edu to get in touch. Tune in next week for our conversation about local food systems, sustainability, and spirituality. And as always, 